You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. When I was a student uh, over here at the University of Texas in in the late 80s, uh, a few of my friends put together a survey related to the inscription at at the base of the tower, uh, the main building. It, It says, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And uh, we went out on campus, and we, and, the first, and we were talking to students, and the first question is, do you know who said this? And, um, and when we were out on campus, almost no one got the answer to that question right, right? We, we got Aristotle, we got Martin Luther King Jr., uh, we got Gandhi, uh, we got a few Bill Shakespeare's uh, in there, because it kind of sounds like Shakespeare, doesn't it? Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we're thinking, wherefore art thou Jesus? But it's, it's Jesus who said the quote, and almost no one got it. And, uh, but when we established that, no, th- these, are the, these are the words of Jesus Christ, engraved in stone, bearing witness to the campus, day after day, season after season, year after year, uh, once we established that, we had some great conversations about truth and about freedom. And so we would ask, what do you think Jesus means by truth here? Now, what do you think Jesus means by freedom here? And the real interesting thing was, is that everybody agreed that they wanted freedom, but almost no one agreed on what truth is. Like, everybody thought, man, freedom, that sounds good. I want some of that. But this idea of this objective universal truth out there somewhere was a little bit harder to swallow. Now, this was nothing new in our society. This, this actually was the prevailing view of truth Uh, especially on a university campus uh, that had been around for generations. If you rewind a few years back in in the history of our country, uh, before we were even a country, uh, in 1636, uh, Harvard was founded. It makes it the the oldest uh, college on, on United States soil. And you probably know this about Harvard, but the motto of Harvard is veritas, which is the Latin word for truth. And on the original seal for Harvard, there were three books, two books up here and a book down here. And the word veritas was written across the three books, veritas. And the the two books on top of the seal were open like this. Uh, And it was to signify that truth and knowledge, some truth and knowledge is sought empirically. Uh, Some of the truth about the world can be learned in books, can be discerned through the five senses, through reason. But the third book on the seal was like this. It was upside down. You couldn't look into it. And it was to signify that some truth, in fact, the truth below all other truth and all all other knowledge can't be sought by us alone, but it must be revealed to us by God. That's kind of a humble stance for for an academic institution to take. In the 1800s, uh, the, the European Enlightenment was beginning to, infe- to affect, uh, infect, affect, uh, I just caught myself there, but maybe I meant to say that, uh, was beginning to uh, affect the United States colleges, things like rationalism, uh, skepticism, reason. And in 1880, under a relatively new president, Harvard changed their seal. That third book that was like this, they turned over like this, because they wanted to say, that now we believe that all truth is available to us through human effort, 
Through, through rational, reasonable inquiry, inquiry, we can come up with all truth. That's amazing. For an institution that is shaping future leaders, thinkers, academics like Harvard, to now be saying, we don't need God in our pursuit of truth. We can find it on our own. Uh, that was a sign of things to come related to truth. It was a nod to the glory of humanity. It was, a, it was, it was reason over revelation. It, it was man over God. And now man had become the arbiters of truth. We don't need some objective truth outside of us to be revealed to us. We'll figure it out on our own. And that's sort of how the direction our culture went, didn't it? So under, you know, with modern thought, the idea was that truth is something to be discovered through our, through our senses, through reason, through rationalism. Under postmodern thought, and I'm generalizing in these categories, uh, truth was something that, to be determined by self. And so something is true when I say it's true. And if it's true for me, it doesn't have to be true for you because it's, it's true for me. And so it's no wonder that when you fast forward from, from Harvard in the 1880s to the University of Texas in the 1980s, it's no wonder when you're out on campus talking about truth with students that nobody can agree on truth because that's, that's how it was. Even the way people talked about the inscription revealed, revealed that they believed that truth was personally determined because they didn't even know who said it, but it didn't matter because they could interpret it however they wanted to. Never mind what the original speaker of the, statement, of the statement meant when he said it. Now, I tell you all that just to help us come to this passage in John 8 with an awareness of our own context. Um, I think because of the cultural waters that we swim in, it's very easy for us to come at truth from a, from, from a different way than Jesus would. Right. We, when we think about truth and when we think about freedom, we don't necessarily think about those things in the way that Jesus nor his original hearers thought about those things. See, for Jesus, truth was from God. Freedom was from God. For Jesus, freedom didn't mean independence. Freedom didn't mean self-rule. Uh, for Jesus, freedom actually meant giving up self-rule. I heard Tim Keller say one time that that in America, our birthday, the birthday of our country is July 4th. We call it Independence Day. He said the birthday of a Christian is Dependence Day. It's the day that we recognize our dependence on God. And so ironically, real freedom in our life actually comes from submission. It comes from surrender, from submitting ourselves to Jesus and his word. In John chapter 8, which Tina just read from, Jesus is going to call his hearers, and I think he calls us to, to see freedom the right way by seeing the inseparable link between truth and freedom. They go together. You cannot separate them. And so what he does here is he gives an invitation to freedom, then he talks about the major threat to freedom, and then he talks about the way to freedom. And I want to look at those three things for a few minutes today. The, the invitation to freedom, the threat to freedom in anyone's life, uh, and then the, the way to freedom. All right, so look at John 8 for, uh, in verse, uh, let's see, verse 31. Let's look at the invitation to freedom, starting in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
If you abide in my word, if you dwell there, if you make your home there, then you're truly my disciples. There was a lot of hangers-on with Jesus. A lot of people following him around just out of curiosity. A lot of people following him around because of what they might get from him. And so Jesus sort of wants to separate the crowd here, and he just very nonchalantly invites them to abide in his word. If you abide in my word, if you dwell there, you're truly my disciples. If, you, if, you, if you'll come in and make yourself at home in my word, you're my disciples, and there in the home of my word, you'll experience truth, which leads to freedom. One of the things uh, that we see over and over in John's gospel is that, is that Jesus' word is actually synonymous with God's word. So in John 3, we read, the one that God has sent, the Son, utters the words of God. In John 7, Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, but it's, it's his who sent me. John 12, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father has given me what to say and what to speak. John 18, Jesus tells Pilate, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Because when Jesus was speaking to you, God was speaking to you. He was the very word of God in the flesh. And Jesus says, hey, come into the word of God, abide there, make your home there, because that's where the truth is. Throughout the Bible, um, the primary way that God reveals himself, uh, and we know this, is by his word. So God creates by his word. In Genesis 1, you have this repeated refrain, God said, God said, God said, God said, and stuff is getting created as he said, as he said. Uh, God makes promises and covenants by his word. So God said to Noah, God said to Abraham, God said to Moses, God said to David. God reveals his character by his word, what he's like. God warns by his word. He corrects by his word. He pronounces judgment by his word. He comforts, sustains, redeems, renews by his word. The people of God have always related to God by, as he's revealed himself in his word. And so Jesus is saying here, that a true disciple is someone who makes, makes their home in God's word. He's saying, come on in. Make yourself at home here in my word, which is God's word, and you'll find freedom and truth there. And he's not saying you got to know everything about the house. He's just, gotta, he's just saying, you got to sense that this is, my, this is my place. This is where I belong. This is my home. This is where I find truth. This is where I find life. This is where I find freedom. You know, when I make myself at home somewhere, I rest there. I'm not in a hurry because I want to be there. So I kick my feet up. I'm filled up there because that's where I eat. And there's people there that I love. And so I'm filled with, you know, relation, I'm relationally full at home. I'm truly myself at home. You know, there's no pretense. I'm not performing. I'm not try- who you are at home is who you are, isn't it? And so there's great freedom in that. And there's, there's actually two sides to that, though, right? There's, on the one hand, there's an ease to being at home, just being who you truly are. Uh, on the other hand, there's this kind of a sanctifying confrontation that happens at home because the people that you live with know the true you and see the true you like nobody else. And so they, there's confrontation. So you know, I experience, you know, at home, I walk, I'll walk around the house eating out of the peanut butter jar because I love peanut butter. So I'll walk around with a spoon and the peanut butter, just eating it, right? And I just feel so comfortable being myself because I'm at home. 
But then, so there's ease, but then there's confrontation. Because someone will say, hey, don't do that. There's four other people that live here. That's gross. Don't be eating out of the peanut butter like that. When we're at home, when we're home in God's word, it's a place where you are both fully accepted and then you are confronted to change. Because in the home of God's word, the truth about you is confronted with the truth about God. And good stuff happens there, right? Good stuff happens there. If you're just reading your Bible for knowledge and information to, to make, you know, to fill your mind with Christian stuff, and you're not allowing the Bible to read you, to make changes in you, then you're not making your home in the Word of God. Jesus says, abide there. Now, I want to give you a couple of practical thoughts about this. There's a couple of practical dimensions to abiding in the Word of Jesus, in the Word of God. Uh, one is, is temporal, related to time, and, and one is, is, is spatial, related to, to room, space in your life. And so, temporally, to abide in the Word of God means that we would just persevere in it, that we would stick with it over time, that you, would, that you and I would make it our home over years and years and years, that you'd live in it, live there, wear it out. And then spatially, to abide in the Word of God just means to make room for it in your life. Have some margin in your life where you can hear it, where you can think about it, where you can meditate on it, where you can read it. It's one of the reasons why we make considerable space for the Word of God, the the reading and the preaching of the Word of God in our worship service. It's what it means to abide there. And so do whatever it takes to make room for it in your life. Read it out loud with your friends, with your family. Listen to it on your phone as you're driving to work. One earbud, of course, right? I'm Don't drive unsafely, but listen to the Word of God as you drive. Just do whatever it takes. Jesus is not prescriptive. He doesn't say what to do. He just says, come on in. Make yourself at home in my Word. Sometimes I think that we we act like Jesus is asking us to move into this tiny one-bedroom apartment. Like he's saying, hey, move into and abide in this little narrow prison cell. And we look at it and we think, I'm supposed to fit my whole life in there. It's so narrow. So tight. The Word of God is not narrow. It's not tight It's rest- and restrictive. It's wide. It's a mansion. The Word of God is a mansion because the God of the universe reveals himself there. And it's, it's, a, it's a mansion full of goodness and treasure. And he invites us in. Come into the mansion of my truth and you will be set free as you abide there. Isn't that great? But Jesus... Jesus' original hearers uh, were not super, super thankful about this invitation. They were actually insulted by it. Look at verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? We're, off, we're, we're Abraham's kids. That's our pedigree. What are you talking about being set free? We have never been enslaved at all. Unless you count Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, and Greece, Syria. Now that the Roman Empire is kind of enslaved, oppressing us in some ways. But other than that, we have never been enslaved to anyone. Don't they know that their dominant story Their dominant redemptive story, their gospel story that they tell, 
deals with deliverance from slavery? What what does Deuteronomy chapter 6 tell them? In the future, when your kids ask you, why do we live like this? Why, Why do we relate to God like this? This is what you tell your kids. We were slaves. We were slaves in Egypt. And God delivered us. God brought us out. Tell the truth about yourself. It's not us who brought ourselves out. It's not because we were descendants of Abraham. God brought us out. That is the truth of our story. It's not about your pedigree. It's not about your knowledge. Jesus has invited his hearers into freedom, but there's something keeping them from experiencing that freedom. There's a greater threat to their freedom than political slavery or enslavement by other human beings. And Jesus exposes this threat. Look at verse 34. This is the threat to freedom. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The threat to freedom that Jesus is talking about is the enslaving power of sin. This verse could, could be translated literally, everyone who makes a practice of sin, who, does, who makes sin their way of life, is a slave to sin. Sin apparently is this force, this power that can overcome a person. Now, what is it? Ray Steadman, I think, gives a helpful dis- description of it. Ray Steadman says, sin is that fallen twist in a person which makes him or her want to play God on every occasion. We want the world to revolve around us, always to be the center of things. And that self-centeredness, he says, is sin. That's the root. That's the twist in the human nature which makes us commit sins. So sin leads to sins. The root always bears fruit in someone's life. At its root, sin is self-centeredness. It's self-rule. It's self-mastery. Whatever you live for, that's your master. Everyone has one, even if the master is self. And what Jesus is saying to them, the master I'm talking about is not Pharaoh. It's not Caesar. It's something much deeper. It's the tyranny of self. It's the tyranny of the ego. It's the ruling power of sin in your life. And that ruling power, that master is going to show itself in their behavior, even towards Jesus in this conversation. The root is going to start bearing fruit right there in this conversation. Look at verse 37. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I know your pedigree. I know your genealogy, but you're trying to kill me. And the reason you're trying to kill me is because you don't abide in my word. The truth is not in you. Verse 38, 39. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. What did Abraham do? What is Abraham most known for? He believed God. He took God at his word. He took God's word to be truth. Jesus is saying, if you're of Abraham, do that. Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, 
a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your, that your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. In other words, we are not illegitimate children, Jesus, unlike maybe you are, because we've heard about the daddy issues surrounding your birth, right? Virgin birth, right. So they start taking shots at Jesus here. They start attacking him personally, which is always the sign that you've lost the argument, right? They're starting, they're like, no, you're the illegitimate child, Jesus. Verse 42 Jesus said to them, if you were, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and here I am. I didn't come on my own accord, but he sent me. How do you know that God is your father? It's real simple. You love Jesus. <laughs> you love Jesus, because Jesus' father is your father. That, that makes Jesus your big brother. You love your big brother. It's real simple. That's all he's saying. And then he gets to verse 44, and this is where he gets down to brass tacks. He's going to just lay it all out here. This is uh, one of the longest verses in the Gospel of John, and it's, it's probably the harshest verse in the Gospel of John. This is not puppies and bunnies and rainbows Jesus, right? This is tough stuff that he's going to say to them. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. Now, that is fighting words. If someone says your daddy is the devil, <laughs> we're, you're going to throw down, right? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer. Your father was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. You see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, you're not free because you're listening to the wrong father. You see, if truth brings freedom, if the truth sets you free, then it follows that lies lead to slavery. Lies enslave us. Lies are, that, are what enable this enslaving power of sin. Slavery and tyranny always thrive on lies, on a distortion of the truth. Satan is the father of lies, and he enslaves people in sin according to his lies. Remember Genesis 3? Remember how his, how his lies worked there? They weren't, they weren't right out in the open at first. They were kind of subtle uh, at first. Genesis 3, verse 1, Satan said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So, you know, he cast doubt on God's word in that moment. Just a little wedge in there. Did God really say that you're not supposed to eat any tree in the garden? And while the man and the woman are kind of thinking, wait, uh, wait a minute. Did God really? You know, I can't remember exactly what he said there. He's cast doubt, and then he goes for the full frontal assault. He contradicts word, God's word right out. Verse 4 in Genesis 3. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And yet in Genesis 2, 17, God said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. <laughs> he goes total 180 from what God says. So he casts doubt, then he contradicts, and then he goes for all the marbles. He goes for the allure of self-mastery, 
self-rule. Look at verse 5 in Genesis 3. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So if you eat from this, this tree, you can be like God. And they're like, oh yeah, that sounds great. We're in. We're in. If we can be like God, we want to do that. And the enslavement to sin is then complete. It's an enslavement to self-mastery. It, it is an enslavement to self-rule. And lies are what enabled the enslavement. A distortion of God's word. And I want you to hear this if you don't hear anything else this afternoon. Lies are the enemy of freedom. Lies are the enemy of freedom. This is true if you're a Christian. This is true if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian and God is your father, lies are still the enemy of freedom in your life in all sorts of ways. When we believe the wrong things, it affects the way we live in all sorts of ways because it empowers sin in our life. It enables sin uh, in our life. I want to give you a helpful little model that I heard years ago from a guy that was kind of a mentor in my life. And uh, it's a little formula that's easy to remember. And, and I, think this, I, I think this originally came from a guy named Chris Thurman, who's a counselor here in Austin. I'm not sure, but I think it's his originally, but that's not who I heard it from. Uh, but here, here's, the, here's the, the model. A plus B equals C, right? It's easy. Some of you have heard this before. A is any activating event in your life. Any, you know, something happens in your life. Big, big or small, inconsequential, consequential, whatever. Something in your life happens. That's A. C is your response, your reaction, what you feel what you think, what you say, your behavior, what you do. It could be an you know, outward response. It could be something you just internalize, but that's what C is. Okay, so for example, A, you have a bad day at work, terrible day at work. I know that none of y'all can relate to that, but say just hypothetically, you have a bad day at work. C, later when you're with your friends or with your family, you start to gossip about one of your coworkers. Or you start to complain about your boss because for some reason running somebody else down makes you feel better about what happened in your bad day. Now, there's another part of the formula, and it's B. And these are the things that you believe. Right? These are things you believe consciously, that you believe subconsciously, and it's a mix of truth and lies. Now, typically, when we want to deal with our sin and see some change in it, we deal, we just go after C. It's like, man, I need to stop gossiping. I, I know, I realize that's wrong. I need to stop doing that. Or I need to stop complaining so much. But the issue is, if we, don't, if we never go after B, then we're not going to ever see real change in C. And so we need to ask ourselves, what are, what are some of the things that I'm believing uh, related to this bad day that I had? So maybe it's something like, my unhappiness is usually someone else's fault. That's a lie. It might be, but it's probably not usually someone else's fault. Maybe it's a lie that uh, I should, at work, I should not have to deal with difficult people. And I cling to that, and it affects my response. We would never say that we believe these things outright. Sometimes they're just part of who we are, 
and yet they become functional beliefs, things we hold on to, and they affect our emotions, they affect our behaviors. I'll give you a personal example of one in my life. Um, I want you to imagine one of the dear, sweet, wonderful people that I live with uh, has loaded the dishwasher in a goofy, inefficient manner, okay? I want you to, you know, I've, imagine that I've talked to them about this repeatedly, that there's a way to load the dishwasher, right? All the plates go this way, all the bowls go this way. It's, it's so that we can maximize the space, get as much in there as possible before we turn the dishwasher on. And I've talked about this over and over, but imagine that someone has loaded it the wrong way. That's A. As I am putting all the plates the right direction over here in C, uh, I start to feel anger and I start to rant about that. And uh, I cross the line somewhere in there. I cross the line into sin. Now, if you wanted to help me deal with this, one of the things you could tell me is, dude, why don't you just relax? It's not that big of a deal. It's just the dishwasher. But if I'm going to really deal with it in my life, if I'm really going to deal with the sin in my life, uh, I need to deal with some of the things that I'm believing deep down in my heart, maybe that I'm not even aware of. Things like my way is always the right way. So everybody needs to do it my way. Things like if I talk to somebody and tell them something and they don't listen to me and follow through, they don't respect me and I deserve respect. Things like, my anger is what will change people. Like if I say it firmly enough, and maybe even harshly enough, they'll really change. It's a lie. And so let me ask you, what are some lies that you might be believing? They could be from our culture, they could be from your family, they could just be from you, they could be from the evil one himself. What are some lies that you're believing? Here's, a, here's some common ones, just to get you thinking about it. Lies related to self and others. I've got to be perfect. I can't be happy if things aren't going my way. I don't measure up. Other people should initiate with me. When things go bad, it must be somebody else's fault. When things go bad, it must be my fault related to money and possessions. This is my stuff. I deserve more than I have. I deserve nicer stuff related to dating or marriage. The other person should meet all my emotional needs. The other person should do things and think just like I do. Related to parenting. If I do everything right, my kids will turn out just like I want them to. Or, I can't insist that my child obey me. That's kind of restrictive. I want them to be my friend. I want them to choose to do the right thing on their own. Lies related to God. Because I'm a Christian, God won't let me suffer. I can earn God's love. I don't need to confess or repent. I'm too far gone to be redeemed. Lies related to life in general. Life should be fair. Life should be easy. Life should not be broken in any way. We believe these things. And so the question is, what are the truths about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, that, begin, that, that can speak to these lies and replace these lies? See, the difficulty with lies 
is that by their very nature, they deceive us. Sometimes, probably most of the time, we're not even aware of them. If we were, they wouldn't be working so well in our life. This is one of the reasons we need the community so bad. And this is why we push each other towards gospel community. Because we need others who know us so deeply that they can put a finger on our life and say, hey, here's what I see you believing, and that's a lie. And they point us back to the truth. Because the only way out of slavery into freedom is through truth. What Jesus calls us to in this passage is to believe the gospel and keep on believing the gospel and keep on believing the gospel and preach it to yourself and preach it to your friends and preach it to your family because we need the gospel. That's the way to freedom. And I want to end with that. Look at verse 35 and 36. The way to freedom, and I won't say as much about this, but I just want you to see it. Verse 30, let's look at verse 34 again. We've seen the invitation to freedom. We've seen the threat to freedom, which is enslaving sin that's empowered by lies. And now the way to freedom. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son, capital S, sets you free, you will be free indeed. In this culture, a slave or a bondservant uh, was not a permanent member of the household. They were not a part of the family. Uh, they were not truly at home uh, in, in the house. Uh, they just worked there. And so they didn't know where they stood. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't know if, where they belonged. But this was not true of a son because the son was part of the family. A son was an heir. A son knew what their future held. A son was, was fully at home in his father's house. What Jesus is saying is that if you want to be set free, then someone within the family has to liberate you. Someone within the family has to set you free, and that is precisely what has happened to us in the gospel. When we trust in Jesus, who is the only true son, he sets us free from the enslaving power of sin. Isn't that great? But that's not where, he doesn't stop there. That's not all he does. He also allows us, he invites us in and allows us to share in his status of sonship. In other words, through Jesus, we're not only set free from sin, but Jesus says, hey, don't just leave, stick around. Stick around in the house. Be a part of the family. You're my brother. You're my sister now. God is our father. You you no longer just work in the house for God. You're a part of the family. He sets us free so that we might live for him. In Christ you belong. In Christ you are at home with God. You are free because he set you free indeed. He set you free literally in truth. And freedom is not being without a master. Freedom is just having the right master, right? Freedom is not just getting to do whatever you want. Freedom is is getting to do what you're meant to do, what you're made to do. Freedom is the ability to recognize lies and replace them with truths. And so when I'm tempted to believe the lie that I have a right to always be respected and listened to, I need to remember the truth of the gospel, that Jesus was disrespected. He was disregarded. He was mocked and mistreated so that I might be made a respectable member of the family. When I start believing the lie that my anger is the way to change people, I need to remember the truth that God didn't show me anger. 
In Christ, God showed me patience and mercy and kindness. In fact, it was his kindness that led me home to him. It led me to repentance. I need to replace lies with truth that I might be free in the, way that I, in the very way that I live. I want to leave you with a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 2. It deals with this question, how did Jesus pave the way to our, for our freedom? Like, how did he pave the way home to God for us? If you've been a Christian a while, you know the answer is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But listen to how Hebrews chapter 2 phrases this. This is great. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Isn't that awesome? Like by his death and resurrection, he set us free, not only from the father of lies, uh, but from the power of sin and the fear of death, our greatest enemy. Jesus, who is the truth, has set us free. Praise God. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.